You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And when you find your place, let's bow our heads before we begin. Our merciful God, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for the truths that are revealed in it, truths that speak to our time and our day. Uh, human nature and things that are true about reality. We pray that you would help us to understand what Solomon means in this passage that is before us. We pray that we might learn these lessons and learn them well, and that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that your word might be our focus, and that your glory may be the chief and eternal concern of all your people. And may that be the case here this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes is a chronicle of Solomon's search in so many areas and of so many different things. He has uh, been engaged in this search of all of human activity and human understanding and human endeavor. Uh, he has searched the highs, and the, the highs and lows of all of creation and all of human experience and all of human labor in an attempt to see if, is there meaning in any of that? Is there meaning in any of it? Is there any significance? And his perspective has been from under the sun. He is examining everything, as it were, from under the sun. What, what can I learn by looking at it with, without God in my perspective, without God in the picture? And as a result, Solomon has ended up concluding that everything is meaningless. And in, chapter, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're only in chapter 7 now and finishing up chapter 7 today, but we have seen so far a very comprehensive list of things that Solomon has examined and searched. We've seen that he has, he has looked at nature and man and wisdom and philosophy and pleasure and possessions and activity and labor, entertainment, enjoyment, justice, power, oppression, riches, poverty, human reason, human philosophy. Those have been the, the fields of Solomon's study. And he, of course, having done all of that without God in the equation, without God in the perspective, Solomon has come to a very nihilistic perspective. In other words, he has to conclude that it's all meaningless. And this is what we've seen that you get. When you take God out of the perspective and out of the picture, you are left with a self-destructive, self-loathing nihilism. A throwing up of your hands and saying, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all empty. And and truly, the only way we can have any idea of meaning and significance is if God is in that equation and He is in that mix. And so we're going to look today at another area of Solomon's search, another area, a thing that Solomon searched, another area of examination, and that is for true, the, the true meaning and significance behind, behind all of life, all of life. The big question, why are we here and what does it all mean? And that is what he is describing at the end of chapter 7. So we're going to be looking today at verses 23, because we stopped last week with verse 22, 23 through 29. And we're going to divide it up into two sections or two, two parts here. First, we're going to see the diligence of Solomon's search in verses 23 through 26. And then we're going to look at the, the disappointment of Solomon's search in verses 27 through 29. The diligence and then the disappointment. Or I should say it's 26 through 29 is the disappointment of his search. So 23 through 25, the diligence of his search. 
I want you to read it with me, and I want you to not prejudge anything that you are about to read. There'll be plenty of time for judgment later on. Let's just get through the passage. Verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, and to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. That is the the diligence of his search. Now look at his disappointment. What did he find? Verse 26, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation which I'm still seeking and have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, and I have not found a woman among all these. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Now, those are not some very flattering things regarding women that you just read in that passage or that I just read to you in that passage. And uh, given that today is Father's Day, I figured there's nothing better to do than to speak of the lack of virtue and the bitterness of, among women. On Father's Day, I spoke on death on Mother's Day, so why not chase it up with a sermon like this on Father's Day? So here we go. We will get to the passage and its difficulty a little bit later on. Let's look first at the diligence of Solomon's search in verses 23 to 25. I want you to notice first the, the, the language that Solomon uses that describes his, his research, his investigation, the intensity of it. You'll notice, in, in fact, this is all the way through the entire passage, but notice in verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom. Verse 24, who can discover it? Verse 25, I directed my mind. Look at the word, verbs that he uses. To know, to investigate, to seek, and to know. Verse 26, I discovered. Verse 27, behold, I have discovered, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Verse 28, which I am still seeking, but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand. I have not found a woman among all these. Verse 29, behold, I have found. Look at the language that he's using. Seeking and knowing and investigating and searching and seeking and, and finding and not finding and being disappointed in his search. That's what he's describing. So let's look at, look, that is the diligence of it. Now, when Solomon says at the beginning of verse 23, I tested all this with wisdom, what does the all this refer to? I tested all of this with wisdom. Is he describing just what is in this passage or is he speaking of what is to come or is he speaking about what he has already searched through? I think that this verb, the, the all this, not the verb, but that noun, that description, all this refers to what is to come as well as everything he has looked at. He, this is Solomon kind of summing up his search. I have searched all of this. And in fact, this, if this is sort of sums up the search, verse chapter 1 verse 13 introduces the search. He says back in chapter 1 verse 13, And I want you to compare this to verses 23 and 25 of our passage here. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. Chapter 1, verse 13, I set my mind to seek and explore with wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. The language is very similar. Look at verse 23. Where Solomon says, I tested all this with wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 13, I did this with wisdom as my guide. I sought and explored using wisdom, he says. In verse 25, he says, I directed my mind. In chapter 1, verse 13, I set my mind. The beginning of the book introduces us to this thorough search that he is about to make of of all human activity and everything under the sun. And here he is summing it up. And he is just saying, all of these things I have searched through with wisdom, 
And here is what I have found, and it ends up being a disappointment. And notice verse 23 has something of a contradiction to it. Do you notice that? I tested all this with wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it, that is wisdom, was far from me. Now you should be scratching your head saying, okay, so if you tested this with wisdom, it must mean you had wisdom. If you had wisdom, then why would you say, I would be wise, but wisdom was far from me? If wisdom is far from you, you're not wise. So how can you test something with wisdom if you're searching for wisdom and you don't have wisdom? See, it's kind of a dilemma there. Until we realize that I I think that Solomon is using the term wisdom in two different ways. He's using it in one way to describe examining things with the wisdom he's described in chapter chapter 7, that perspective on things that God can give. He's testing that with wisdom. But then when he describes wisdom as being far from him, he's describing something different, something else, an ultimate wisdom. He's describing that which he, which he makes reference to in the next two verses. Look at verse 24. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Now, if you're using the NIV, you'll notice that it translates it a little bit different. The NIV translates it, whatever wisdom may be is remote and exceedingly mysterious. In other words, the NIV translators take that phrase, what has been, to refer to wisdom, as if wisdom itself is mysterious and far from me. That's why he says in verse 23, it's far from me. Whatever wisdom is, they translate it, whatever wisdom is, it's mysterious. And so who can discover it? But, but that's not what Solomon is describing. The NASB translates it, what has been. Other translations might say, what is. What Solomon is describing there is all of reality itself. This would be a Hebrew way of saying Everything that is. Solomon's not just searching for the answers to little things in life, but the big questions. This is, these are the big issues. What explains everything? What is the reality behind reality? What is ultimate truth? What is ultimate knowledge? What is ultimate reality? That's what Solomon's looking, looking for. This is what every philosopher from every age is looking for. The, the answers to the big questions. Why am I here? Why does anything exist instead of nothing existing? Why is there existence? What can be known and how well can we know it? And can we know anything? Are we just figments of a butterfly's dream? Or do we really exist? And what is the nature of reality itself? What is the nature of mankind? What is the nature of what I perceive? Is it an illusion or is it real? Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? Those are the big questions. I talk about just the meaning of labor, the meaning of marriage. I think these things are insignificant. And I'm just talking about the, the, the significance of having kids or the significance of our work or the significance of how we dress or the significance of community or philosophy or those things. These are the big overarching questions. These are the big ones. What has been? And everything that is, reality itself, without its boundaries, without any boundaries, all that is is mysterious, it is remote. Solomon says it is far from me. He wanted to know those things. So when he says, I will be wise, he is describing a search after those things. Not just the wisdom that we can know that is revealed in Scripture, but the things that are hidden from us. And and how did Solomon's quest go? He says it was remote, verse 23. It was far from me, verse 24. It's remote, exceedingly mysterious. And so he concludes, who can discover it? Who can know the meaning of life? Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, says this is the epitaph of every philosopher. This is what's written on every philosopher's tombstone. Why? Not just what, but why? 
Why, why does it all exist? Why are we here? What, what is the big purpose? What is the big aim? Now, as a Christian, I can explain some of that. But far too much of that answer is hidden from us. Because Scripture says that God has hidden these things from us. He has not told us everything. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are things that God has revealed and there are things that God has not revealed. There are certain mysteries to life that we cannot figure out what the end of those mysteries are, what the answers to all of it is. He has revealed some things to us, but He has not revealed everything to us. And so there is this grand mystery. He says in, in Isaiah, God says in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. For my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways higher than your ways. Right? God is high above us. And, and we, couldn't, we couldn't even explain it. We couldn't even understand it, even if God gave us all of the answers. We wouldn't be able to explain it. He's given us a lot of answers, but He's not given it all to us. And this shows us the limitations of human reasoning and philosophy, of human understanding, uh, human endeavor and activity and all of our thinking. And we might say, well, if, if I could just live longer, if I had more time to research and to study and to, to read the ancients and the philosophers of the ages and to study wisdom, if I just had more time to do that, it's because life is so short that we can't get the answers to it, right? Is that true? You double, triple, quadruple your lifespan? You're not going to learn anything more than what you've already learned in terms of the, answering the big questions. We, we would all still die because it's a mystery. This shows us the limits of human understanding. John Calvin said this is a learned ignorance, that the more we research and study and know and come to understand, the more we realize that we don't know. The more, the, the more wisdom we have, the more we realize how foolish we really are. And so there is this, there's this mystery that we, we cannot grasp, we cannot understand it, and it eludes us. And Solomon was frustrated with that. And this is what he is describing in verse 25 when he says, I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom. And look at the phrase, and explanation. That's how the NASB renders it. Other translations are a little bit different. Let me give you those. The King James says, to seek out wisdom and the reason of things. The NIV, the ESV says, to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. The NASB says, an explanation. The reason of things, the scheme of things, an explanation. What is he driving at? I wanted to seek and to study and to investigate and to know reality, the big question. Why is it all the way that it is? This was the, the big area of his investigation, the scheme of things, the big issues. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? That's what philosophers in every age ask. And today they, they sit around in their Ivy League academic lounges in their smoking jackets, stroking their beards and puffing on their cigars, wondering what is the meaning of it all, coming up with new philosophies and ideologies and ideas. And into that smoke-filled lounge steps the Christian and says, I have some answers. I can tell you where we have come from and why we are here and where we are going. And what do they say? We don't have time for your Bronze Age book with all of its myths and stories that people believed in ages gone by. We, through our own human reasoning and human philosophy and human knowledge and understanding, we can research and we can know and we can split atoms. And one of these days we will build a telescope that will tell us the outer reaches of what the universe holds and then we will find the mystery of the meaning of life. And the Christian says, no, I know what life is all about. I have those answers here. Do we have all of the answers here? No, there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed are for us and for our children that we may obey Him. He's revealed enough for us to be content. But the philosopher who rejects all of this will be left with a self-loathing and self-destructing nihilism that just says it's all meaningless because that 
is what you get when you reject God and take him out of the picture. And so Solomon, looking at this life from under the sun, wanted to know an explanation for everything. Is there one piece of knowledge, one piece of wisdom, one truth that explains all of reality and everything that is? That's the big question. That was the diligence of his search. Now look at what he discovered in verses 26 through 29. 26 through 29, and you'll notice that each of these things, there are three things that Solomon discovered. Each one of these begins with the phrase, I discovered. Verse 26, and I discovered. Verse 27, behold, I have discovered. Verse 29, behold, I have found only this. A little variation there, but it's the same idea. There are three things that Solomon discovered. First, in verse 26, that women are more bitter than death. I just want to let that hang there for a minute so that we can all... Just appreciate it. I will take self-evident truths for $1,000, Alex. (laughs) Or you say, maybe Solomon discovered the answer to all of life after all. It's right there in verse 26. If you knew the amount of self-restraint that I'm exercising right now, you would be absolutely so proud of me. We are going to move on before all of the women leave and all of the men realize that they just found their new life verse. So in all seriousness, what do we do with that passage? How do we handle that? I'm going to make it the title of my next book. But how is it that we're to understand what it is that Solomon is saying in verse 26? That women are more bitter than death. Now there are people, critics and skeptics of the Bible, who would latch onto this verse and say, see... The Bible is a patriarchal, misogynistic, woman-hating book. Anybody who makes that claim has never read the Bible. okay? Because the Bible is not a misogynistic, patriarchal, woman-hating book. The Old Testament elevated women to a level that was unlike anything enjoyed in any other culture, in any other nation in the ancient world. The Old Testament taught that women are created equal with men in value and dignity and worth. Proverbs 31 describes the virtuous woman. The book of the, the Bible describes women as being a gift from God to men as their helper and a helpmate. The Bible describes women's virtue and their value to people. Uh, in the Old Testament nation of Israel, women were uh, given certain property rights when they were uh, inherited land from their fathers and there were no sons. Um, women were told, uh, women were, men were instructed to take care of and to cherish women even in the Old Testament. You understand how different, how radically different that perspective in the Old Testament was from every other ancient culture and nation on the face of the planet. Women never enjoyed that kind of dignity or value anywhere. The Old Testament taught that men and women are equal in value and dignity. The New Testament elaborates on that. Women are equal in men in terms of them inheriting the kingdom of God. They're given spiritual gifts alongside of men. There are role distinctions, yes, in both Old Testament and New Testament, but the role distinctions that women have in terms of what women can do in society, in the church, and in a family, and the different roles that men and women have, those role distinctions have nothing at all to do with the value of women or the dignity of women. And so the Bible is not a misogynistic book. In fact, I would say that the Bible is harder on men than it is on women, if you want to know the truth. 
The Bible shares more about the failures and the foibles and the sinfulness and the wickedness and the utter corruption and depravity of men than it does women. It gives far more examples of wicked and perverse men. Does it say that there are women who are a seductress and a temptation and a harlot and these women are to be avoided? Yeah, it does say that. It also says those things about some men who are foolish failures and have neglected their families and done other things that Scripture condemns. So I would argue that Scripture is far harder on men than it is on women. I, Actually, Scripture is very equal in its treatment concerning warnings both for men and for women. It's an equal opportunity offender, as it were. So it's not a misogynistic book. The Bible did a lot to elevate women. And the more, listen, the more our culture gets away from a biblical view of the sexes and of sexuality and the roles that God has for men and women, the worse women will be treated in our culture. They worse their well. We're already seeing that, aren't we? Where men who self-identify as women run a race and beat women and women are excluded and what does that do for women? The further we get away from a biblical perspective, the worse it is for women and children. Always. No exceptions. Always. The Bible protects and guards against that. So having offered that defense, then what, what do we do with this verse? Because it's still there, right? Women are more bitter than death. How are we going to explain this? Well, let's ask, answer the question, which women is Solomon talking about? Was he talking about one woman? Had he found a woman who, man, phew, she was more bitter than death, that one. I mean, all the other ones were good ones. But this one in particular did me wrong. Is he describing one particular woman? Or is Solomon describing a certain class of women, a group of women, like the harlot or the seductress or the, the bitter woman? Or is Solomon broad-brushing all women as being more bitter than death? The grammar of the, the, of the text itself does not necessarily distinguish or answer that question for us. And so we kind of, we don't think that Solomon is describing just one particular woman. So it kind of narrows it down to the other two, either a class of women or all women that he is talking about. Let's deal with, first of all, with that possibility that it is a class of woman. It is the harlot. And, and for this, people will go outside of Ecclesiastes to Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, but I will read it. It warns about a particular type of woman, the harlot or the seductress. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and listen to the language that's used, and smoother than oil is her speech, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways are unstable, she does not know it. And Proverbs chapter 7 contains similar language and similar warnings about a certain type of woman. So some have suggested that's what Solomon is describing. The harlot, the, the seductress, the temptress that he condemns and describes in Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7. The problem with that interpretation is that it requires us to go outside of Ecclesiastes to another passage in order to understand this because this text doesn't seem to describe a particular class of woman. It's far too general. And it doesn't seem as if Solomon is just speaking of the harlot. And if you look down at verse 28, he says something there that is derogatory towards women as well. I found only one man in a thousand and no women among these. Whatever it was that he's looking for. I'm going to get to that in just a second. So it's a, it's a further sort of description of all women in verse 28. So I would have to say that it seems as if Solomon is describing here, painting with a very broad brush, not one woman, not a class of women, but all women. And I say, Jim, that doesn't make your challenge any easier to make your case that the Bible is not a misogynistic, woman-hating, diatribing, patriarchal book. Now, what does Solomon mean then? I think he is describing all women in general. Okay? I, I'm, I'm pausing here because I want to be very careful in what I'm about to say. 
he is describing all women in general, but we need to find out then what, what is it that Solomon means by this and how are we to take his statement. I don't think that Solomon was a, mis- a complete misogynist. A misogynist, that's the right word, right? He wasn't a complete misogynist. Look over at chapter 9, verse 9, for just a second. Chapter 9, verse 9. And we've seen similar things like this already in Ecclesiastes. 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. That doesn't sound like a misogynist, does it? Enjoy life with the woman that God has given you. She is his gift to you. So enjoy her and enjoy that life with her. That that is a, that is a, a reward from God to be cherished. That doesn't sound like what he's saying here in chapter 7, does it? He says that women are as bitter as death. I think he is describing here all women, but he is describing women from his vantage point of his experience. Let me give you two things to keep in mind regarding this passage. First of all, not everything that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes constitutes the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'll say that again, just a second. I'll give you an illustration. I'll prove what I'm saying. Not everything that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes constitutes the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's an example of that. Everything is meaningless. Is that the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes? No. The teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes is the opposite of that. Everything has meaning because God exists and He will judge all of our deeds. That's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing. And there will be a judgment that is to come. And therefore, we are to live our lives in the fear of God because God exists and everything has meaning. Even though Solomon says all is meaningless, he says that, but that's not what Ecclesiastes teaches. We see the same thing in the book of Job. The the speeches that Job's three friends give to Job while he's sitting in his suffering and his ashes, scraping his wounds after God has taken everything from him, those speeches are not the teaching of the book of Job. Those speeches are included because they are... those, Those speeches actually include erroneous and faulty doctrine and thinking that is given there in order to expose the error of what those men say. So that at the end of the book of Job, we can come to the conclusion, the teaching of Job is not what those men said. It's the opposite of that. And it's the same thing here in Ecclesiastes. What, it, what Solomon is saying here is that all women are bitter. But that's not what the Bible teaches. That is what Solomon experienced. Why? Well, consider the source. This is the second thing to keep in mind. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And Scripture says that those women took his heart away from the Lord his God so that Solomon began to serve other gods by building temples to those gods and providing funds from the nation of Israel for the worship of those gods. In the end, Solomon was a man who was controlled by his lusts and who viewed women as an object or a thing to be used to satisfy his own pleasures. He says as much in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. So when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines, and you view women as something to be used only to satisfy your own lust to which you are enslaved, what do you think the end result of that is going to be? What do you think the experience of such a man is? That women are bitter. And he describes them in verse 26 as being snares and nets, and their hands are chains. Snares and nets and chains. Was it women who enslaved Solomon in that way? It was really his lusts. But he couldn't see his lust fulfilled. He couldn't see any freedom in satisfying his lust. So he saw women as the object, or, or the, the, as the thing that bound him and that kept him enslaved. 
So this is Solomon's experience. And what is the lesson we are supposed to learn from this? If you view women as something to be used instead of something to be cherished, whether it is one wife or all the women in your lives, in the end you will find that your life is bitter. In the end you will say, women are bitter, more bitter than death, because he couldn't be satisfied with it. So this was his experience. A thousand women, most, the vast majority, if not all of whom, were pagans who did not love, honor, or serve the God of Israel. What do you think his experience would be? He would find that women were more bitter than death. And he says at the end of verse 26, one who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. That is exactly how Solomon felt. Having pursued his lust to the end, he would rather have found liberation from those lusts and escaped all of that, now looking back on it, but he was already involved in it. Already he found that women were, their hands are chains. Maybe that's where the phrase ball and chain comes from. And I'll get back to you on that. You have to look into that. <laughs> Whose hands are chains. And the woman who is pleasing to God will escape from it. In other words, the one to whom God shows favor will escape from this condition. The one who is a sinner will be bound up in that lust and bound up in that lifestyle. And in the end, he's going to be a very bitter individual. There's no fulfillment there. That's what you learn. So what do we do with that? That women are more bitter than death. Is that what Scripture teaches? That's not what Scripture teaches, but that's what Solomon experienced. Because if he had cherished his wife, one wife, and been faithful to her in a loving marriage covenant, in a biblical relationship as prescribed in Scripture, he could never have written this, that women are more bitter than death. Because that's not what the Bible teaches, but that is what Solomon felt because of his lusts. All right, the second one, the second thing he discovered, verse 27 and 28, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. And, and now, he's gonna, now we're going to see that among men and women that virtue is rare. That's what he des- describes in verses 27 to 28. I've discovered this, verse 27, and notice the word explanation at the end of verse 27. It's the same word as in verse 25, to seek wisdom and an explanation, the scheme of things, an answer to things, the reason for being. He says in verse 27, he's adding one thing to another, putting together all of the pieces, trying to find that thing that explains all of reality. And Solomon, like Bono, still hasn't found what he's looking for. I have not found it. I'm still seeking, but have not found it. What did he find? What he did find was not what he expected to find. Verse 27 or 28, I found one man among a thousand and not a woman among all these. I found one man among a thousand and not a woman among all these. Now the question is, what was Solomon looking for that he found among men, one in a thousand had this, and among women, nobody had it. What was Solomon searching for? I found one man out of a thousand that has it, and concerning women, none have it. I think that it is virtue that he is looking for, because that's what he describes in verse 29. We're almost forced to provide what it is that Solomon was looking for, because he doesn't say what it is. He just says, I'm searching for everything to find an explanation. I haven't found it. I found one man among a thousand and no women among these. What were we looking for, Solomon? It seems in verse 29, Behold, I found only this, that God made men upright. He's speaking of virtue and uprightness and righteousness. And he says that as he has searched through humanity, out of a thousand men, he has found one virtuous one. And out of a thousand women, no virtuous women. Oh, now see, that's painful too, isn't it? Verse 28, it almost sounds misogynistic again, doesn't it? So what do we do with verse 28? Is it Solomon describing, is Solomon really saying this about women? There are a couple of things to keep in mind. First, 
Many people believe, and I think that there is some merit to this belief, that what Solomon is using here is a hyperbole to, um, to catch our attention. It would be similar to us saying, this guy's one in a million, right? He is so rare that to find somebody like this is just, don't even try finding it. Your chances of finding this are, are, are you'll never do it. It's just one in a million. I found when it comes to looking for virtue, only one man in a thousand has it and no women have it. Virtue. It's just a hyperbole, and it's not necessarily intended to contrast men and women, because some people say that. Well, Solomon obviously thinks women have no virtue, and he thinks men do, and so therefore I'm a man. So, see how great that is, what Solomon says about me? Yeah, what Solomon says is that you're one-tenth of one percent better than women. I mean, that hardly sounds like a... That hardly sounds like the type of verse you would latch onto if you're a chauvinist and you want to show how much better the sexes are. Solomon's point is not to compare men and women. His point is to say, when it comes to looking for virtue, you don't find it among anybody. Verse 20 of, verse 20 of the chapter, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. And he's coming back to that now at the end. You want to look for virtue and uprightness? One man among a thousand and none among the women. If, if, the, if he is here describing women again... I would submit to you that this says more about the women that Solomon associated with than it does about women in general. It really does. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I went to public school, and I can do that math. That's 1,000 women at his disposal. And Solomon is saying not one of these had virtue or uprightness. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary on Ecclesiastes says this, Solomon had 1,000 wives and concubines in his royal harem, unbelieving women who worshipped foreign gods, does it surprise us to learn that not one of them was known for her godliness? Does it shock you? Did we look for a thousand women among all those women and not one of them would be known for her godliness? The Bible says these women turned Solomon away to the worship of other gods. Their hearts were a bitter trap that led to his tragic downfall. That's what Solomon experienced. So he had a thousand women there and he looked among all of them and he said, there's no virtuous women here. I don't find any of these to be virtuous women. What do you expect? What do you expect from a man who piled up foreign wives, who worshipped other gods? So again, this is not Solomon saying something about all women. This is Solomon saying something about his experience. And it tells us something about Solomon more than it tells us about women, right? If you came up and you told me, look, everybody that I know and that I hang out with is a thief. They'd steal the shirt right off your back. That mean everybody would do that? No, it means everybody you hang out with would do that. It tells me something about you that you would hang out in a crowd like that. It tells me something about your friends, the company that you keep. If you say, everybody I know is in bondage to pornography. Everybody you know? You don't know any virtuous people? That doesn't tell me anything about everybody in this room, but it does tell me something about you and the people that you hang out with. Do you see what I'm saying? One man among a thousand... No women among these. Solomon is describing, I think, the women that he had access to, but it tells us more about Solomon than it does about women in general. Now verse 29, why is it that this is true? Why is it that women were to Solomon more bitter than death? Chains and snares and nets. Why is it that there was not a virtuous man among a million? Why is it that there's not a virtuous woman among all of these that he describes in verses 27 and 28? It is because of the third thing he discovered in verse 29. Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright and they have sought out many devices. This describes creation and the fall. Creation and the fall. God made men upright. 
And this describes a, a moral quality, not an intellectual quality. God made men morally perfect, morally upright, morally pure. Adam was that before the fall. And then what did we do? What did mankind do in Adam? We fell in Adam and we sinned in Adam and we have, in the words of Solomon, sought out many devices. Man fell in Adam when Adam ate the fruit. And verse 29 describes all of human history and all of human reality from the moment in the garden when Adam took that fruit and he ate it all the way up until this present time. Men fell and we have sought out many devices. And those four, every word in that phrase tells us something about our sin. We have, they have sought out many devices. They, it is a universal sin. Our sin is universal. It's not some people that have sought out many devices. It's not just a few people. It's not most people. Every single one of us seeks out devices to rebel against God. God made men upright and we fell in Adam. And as a result of that, all of us have sought out many devices. Verse 21, verse 20, there's not a righteous person on the face of the planet. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. There's none who loves the truth. This is the universal condition of all of humanity because we have sought out many devices. And we, it is not just a universal situation. Friends, it is a deliberate situation. We have sought these things out. We have pursued it. Every time an unbeliever sins, he knows in his conscience that what he is doing is deserving of death. When we lie, we know that lying is wrong. We know that stealing is wrong. We know that adultery and fornication are wrong. We know that blasphemy is wrong. False religion is wrong. Doing harm to our neighbor is wrong. Coveting and greed and stealing and all of those things. We know that they are wrong. The law of God is written on our hearts, Romans chapter 2 says. So that our conscience testifies to the fact that we have done these things, but we do it intentionally. And so that's what conscience means. Con meaning with, science meaning knowledge. When we sin, we do so. Our conscience bears witness. We sin with the knowledge that these things are wrong. And so even the unbeliever who has never read the Ten Commandments knows that what he has done is wrong and what he is doing is wrong because it's intentional and it is deliberate and he suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. It is a universal, our sin is universal, our sin is deliberate and intentional and look how multifaceted it is. We have sought out many devices. See, the, the ways in which we sin is not just one or two things, is it? It's not just one or two things. We sin with our eyes, we sin with our minds, we sin in our motives, we sin in our bodies, we sin with our ears, we sin with our tongues, we sin with our intentions, we sin in our thoughts, and, and we do this multifaceted. We, we, are, we are so crafty in how we sin. I think mankind, mankind comes up with sins that the devil would never think of. We are so ingenious in the way that we sin. It's not just that we are thieves, we lie to cover up our thievery. And then we gossip about people that we lie about, and we slander them. And, and we are murderous and adulterous and idolatrous blasphemers. And, and we don't honor God and we disobey our parents. All of those things we have done. It is many devices. And the word devices, and this describes the fourth thing about our sin, that it is very crafty. That word devices describes, quote, a deliberate contrivance for overcoming what should otherwise be expected. A deliberate contrivance for overcoming what ought to be expected. What is it that should be expected? God made men upright. What would we expect? We would expect what? uprightness and righteousness. This is what we should expect. But instead, men have come up with deliberate devices for overthrowing what should. And this describes the, the craftiness and, and, and ingeniousness of our sin. We invent things that could be used for good, and how do we use them? To promote and to engage in all kinds of wickedness and idolatry and blasphemy. We are ingenious in our sins. 
ingenious, the way things that we come up with. We have sought out many devices, all kinds of different ideologies and false religions and ways of thinking and inventions and things that we create, all intended to overthrow the righteousness of God. These are all the things that we use in our active rebellion against a good and benevolent and sovereign creator. We have sought out many devices. Do you want to know what answers all of the things that we see around us? Do you want to know what it is that sort of explains all of reality as we experience it? It's verse 29. God made men upright and we have sought out many devices. Why is the world the way that it is? Because we've sought out many devices. Why, is there, why are there wars and rumors of wars? Why are there rapes and murders? Why is there suffering and disease? God didn't create these things. God created men upright and he pronounced it very good. But mankind has sought out many devices. Mankind in his rebellion has come up with all kinds of ways to overthrow the righteousness of God and wage war against his throne. We've sought out many devices. This explains everything. Not that women are bitter. Not that there are no virtuous women. That you want to know what the big answer to all of the mysteries of life is? Solomon didn't expect this. What explains everything behind everything is human depravity and wickedness. This is why the world is bent. This is why the world is broken. But you and I know something that Solomon did not know. And that is that God has reached into this broken world to redeem a people for His own glory and for the glory of His name. That's what God is doing. In the midst of that brokenness, in the midst of a, a world filled with people who have sought out many devices, God stepped into this creation in the person of Jesus Christ and He lived a righteous life and He died a righteous and perfect death to bear the sin penalty for you and for me. And He did this in order that He might redeem us and forgive us and take us out of this broken and fallen world. That is the promise of God. Here's the, and, and, and that if we repent and believe upon that gospel and trust in that Son who died to save us, that we will be forgiven and we will be redeemed out of it for the glory of His name. Here's God's promise to you. If you die in your rebellion, having sought out many devices to overthrow His righteousness, if you die that way, this broken and twisted and bent world will be the best thing you ever experience. If you repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation, this bent and broken and twisted and perverse world will be the worst thing that you ever experience. And so God commands each of us to repent and to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because that delivers us from this broken and bent world. Let's bow our heads together. Our gracious and merciful God, you have worked in human history to hide the mysteries of life from us to a degree so that we might seek you. As Scripture says, you are not far from each one of us. You are near, you're very near. And we pray that having pondered these things, the mysteries of life and the meaning of all things, that we may be content with what you have revealed and that we may be content to know and trust in the fact that you have stepped into human history to deliver a people out of this mess for your own glory. May none who hear my voice today or in the days to come ever reject that message. We pray that you would be glorified, your name would be made great by saving a people for yourself and for your own glory, that you might be praised and honored by those people for all of eternity. Continue to do that work amongst us and in our hearts, we pray. Help us to trust in you and to rest in your sovereignty and your goodness and the way in which you have designed all things to glorify your great name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.